0: Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley.
1: Is available. At the tone, please record your message.
2: Good morning, Dr. E. My name is Craig. My question is, are all the spiritual gifts still usable today? Hi, Dr. E. Now, some believe within the church that the Sabbath day changed from Saturday to Sunday, but I'm convinced that the Lord never changes. Do you? Hey, Dr. E. This is Sarah from Franklin, Tennessee, and I am wanting to get a tattoo.
3: I have a friend that's had what they thought was dementia, and it's turned out that it's Alzheimer's, and so he is wanting to move to a different state that allows assisted suicide.
2: Does the Second Corinthians verse refer only to work?
1: You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, and we've got another Ask Dr. E episode for you. So naturally, here's Dr. E. How you doing?
0: I'm doing great. How are you this morning?
1: I'm good. Yeah? I love these. These are fun.
0: They really are. People ask some great stuff. I mean.
1: Oh, yeah. I learned so much from (laughs) just recording and producing these. It's great.
0: Well, we start out with Craig from Kokomo. I love it. You want to sing it for us? No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Better you than me.
2: Good morning, Dr. E. My name is Craig calling from Kokomo, Indiana. My question is, are all the spiritual gifts still usable today? I understand from the New Testament that the Lord uh, used the apostles to introduce the gospel to outreaching regions but lately, I've been hearing that all the spiritual gifts are still viable today. I wondered what you thought. Thank you for your time.
0: It's a great question, Craig, and one that cycles in and out of church every so often. I can remember in the late 70s, uh, there was a lot of interest in these gift assessment tools. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's your spiritual gift? You know, like, what's your sign? Yeah. (laughs) And they trend in and out. Right now, of course, it's your Enneagram. Totally. Yeah. Really into that. I think it's (laughs) cultic. (laughs) Please. All right. First of all, let's think through uh, these lists we have in the New Testament when it comes to gifts. There are four main passages in the New Testament. First Corinthians 12, and we could take that 12 through 14. Romans 12. Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4 verses 10 and 11. Now there's some other passages like 1 Timothy 4 14 that, that refer to a gift, but let's speak of just the lists. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4 verses 10 and 11, and we'll refer to some, we'll dip into some of those in a minute. The, the term grace gift comes from the Greek word charisma. Now, Some of you might have come from a charismatic tradition or might be involved in a charismatic church. The word technically just means a grace gift, not necessarily a charismatic movement or a kind of charismatic church. The central passage that I want to begin with is from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is so important when we talk about spiritual gifts. What was the purpose of the gift for the common good? Now, Paul is teaching that these gifts were to profit, were to benefit, were to be useful to others. In other words, the person that possesses the gift is not the primary beneficiary of the gift, but the ministry that person has because of the gift. Now, to your point, the question, it's more important to differentiate so-called sign gifts, and let's talk about healings, Miracles, signs and wonders, speaking in tongues, speaking as a prophet. And perhaps the two most interesting and most controversial of these are speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy. So, aside from so called sign gifts, uh, sometimes we find the argument well, there's a natural gifting of a natural talent. So, for example, uh, if you have a gift for the common good, you come to Christ. You now have this gift. It might be teaching, serving, exhorting, giving, leading. Those would all come from Romans 12, for example. It would make good, common spiritual sense. If a, if a man or woman is a good leader and they come to Christ, then you use that, that gift in leading in a church, leading in a small group, leading sure. in some mission effort, whatever. If you're a generous person, you have the ability to make money, and you're blessed with the attitude of giving. Well, certainly, if you come to Christ, you want to help and give other uh, ministries, organizations, help along the way. This is pretty much common sense spiritually. When we get to the so-called sign gifts, we have to look at these passages very carefully. Surprise, in context, how they're used. The short answer is the sign manifestations were given to authenticate the apostles. The sign gifts were given to authenticate the apostles. Let's go back to Moses. This is a great paradigm to understand. When Moses was granted signs and wonders, why? He's going to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is going to be shown that Yahweh Elohim is God, not Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought himself a God-man. Pharaoh thought his son was the son of God. A lot of parallels. Mm -hmm. So Moses is sent by God, unwillingly, you recall, to go to Pharaoh so that he will show him, this is a what we call a polemic. Who's God? Is Pharaoh God or Yahweh Elohim God? Each of the gifts that Moses performed was to authenticate Moses was sent from Yahweh. And you remember, they could copy some of the early ones. The magicians could turn a snake into a mm-hmm. stick and so forth. But then Moses' snake ate their snakes. Yep. So you got a little bit of a problem there. So who's God? That's the storyline. The miracles from the wilderness all the way through came through Moses' hands. Moses had no power to perform a gift apart from God empowering him mm-hmm. to demonstrate the authentic God is Yahweh. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, let's come New Testament. Speaking in tongues is always the hot debate. As I understand scripture, and you look at the, at the time of Pentecost, this is where the gift begins. It's often overlooked. Number one, they're all Jews. This is Pentecost. This is when all the people would go up to worship into Jerusalem for the 49 days of celebration and the Feast of Booze and all that accompanied the, the Pentecost experience. Jews looked forward to this like Westerners look forward to Thanksgiving or New Year's, but even more so. What's often missed in Acts chapter 2 is that all of these languages, the Greek word is dialectos. They were known languages. They were not uh, charismania. They were not ecstatic utterances. They were dialectos. Listen to the passage. This is Acts 2, beginning at verse 8. And how is it that we each hear them in our own language, dialectos, language, to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya and Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. These are dialectos. So a point that's rarely noted is they're hearing their mother language. Now, I make the argument that this is a dual miracle, meaning I'm speaking in my mother tongue and you're hearing in your mother tongue. Let's put it this way. I'm speaking English, but a Jew from uh, Asia is hearing their mother tongue. I'm speaking English, and a person from Phrygia is hearing Fijian uh, in his head or her head. So we missed the point of this miracle. What's happening at Pentecost is not speaking in ecstatic utterances. This is a known language. You're speaking German, a Frenchman's hearing it in French. Fourth, they mocked the Jews at Pentecost in chapter 2 of Acts verse 13. Others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. And so a casual reader would say, "See, it sounds like gibberish, they're speaking ecstatic utterances, they're speaking a heavenly language." Let's back up and raise the ask the question. If you have all these different dialects, 13 as I count them, all Jews, some are proselytes, all Jews They're going for a Jewish celebration. They're all talking in their mother tongue. That would sound like gibberish. If you were in the UN and everybody was speaking in their home language without interpreters talking to you in your ear, and a casual observer heard that, it would sound pretty crazy. So 13 different languages, the conversation is taking place, and of course the lingua franca of the day would have been Greek or maybe Arabic, but in the main, it's going to hear hundreds if not thousands of different people speaking at the same time in their mother tongue. Now, when we go to 1 Corinthians and we see how the gifts, especially sign gifts uh, and speaking in tongues is used, you must keep in mind the letter Paul wrote was a corrective letter. The entire letter is... He begins right right at the the outset. There's divisions and factions among the Corinthian believers. He's correcting them. So when I teach the book of Corinthians, I always tell folks, write on the top of your Bible and on Corinth, write letter of correction, Corinthians and correction, because both books are correcting them. By chapter 3, we read, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as infants in Christ. I gave you milk, to drink, not solid food, because you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able. Now, stop right there and think about it. The book of First Corinthians is a bowl of milk for baby Christians, which means you better understand divorce, remarriage, and factions, and gifts, and speaking in tongues, or you're still a baby. It's pretty harsh. Now, with the ongoing theme of First Corinthians being corrective, Paul is talking in chapters 12 through 14 about the misuse of gifts. Now, that raises some fascinating questions. Number one, how can you misuse a gift? Now, let me suggest, and this is so helpful, you can't misuse mercy and teaching and leadership, but you can sure misuse prophecy and tongues. <laughs> mm-hmm. Who's going to misuse mercy? You're going to be too merciful? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could. But prophecy and tongues, a person could just. Forgive me, make it up. Yeah. By the way, there's no mention of the misuse of healing. Hmm. So, let's think about this from very common sense. If Paul is correcting them because of the misuse of gifts, you shouldn't be healing a person that way. You see that doesn't happen. Because healing is legitimate or not, you shouldn't be using mercy that way. No, mercy's mercy. But you could easily misuse prophecy and tongues because these sign gifts don't have the way of identifying them the way the more, let's call it subjective gifts, giving, mercy, leadership, serving, and so forth. So let me suggest, it might be too simple, but they are misusing prophecy and speaking in tongues. If prophecy was not from God, it was a problem. And Acts 2 seems clear that those were languages, not ecstatic utterances, that had to be open to interpretation. And that's why Paul goes above and beyond explaining, if someone speaks in a tongue, you better have someone who can interpret that language, or we don't know what it means. That, to me, parallels Acts better than creating an ecstatic utterance or something that has to be confirmed. Again, I can't be bulldogmatic on this, but if we're consistent from languages in Acts chapter 2, the sign gifts authenticated the apostles to prove them to the New Testament, just like Moses has to be proved to Pharaoh and his own people. Now, okay, more than you ever wanted to know, the shortest answer I can give you is the sign gifts were used to authenticate the apostles and their message, just like Moses was authenticated before Egypt and his own people. The apostles had the task of establishing God's church. The other gifts, uh, it makes for a biblical, theological, common sense that they were for the common good of the body.
1: Okay, so a hard right turn. We're going from spiritual gifts to assisted suicide.
3: I have a friend that's had what they thought was dementia and it's turned out that it's Alzheimer's and his concern is, is that he, all the things he's read and heard, he's afraid of what his family will go through watching him deteriorate and the fact that he won't know anybody. Uh, that's one piece of it. The second piece of it is, is financially it would drain them. Um, and so he is wanting to uh, convince his wife to move to a different state that allows assisted suicide. I guess I'd like to have your opinion on how biblically I could talk to him.
0: The best way I can answer this is to go to my friend Johnny Erickson Tata. And I printed off uh, earlier three articles that she has published. One is an excerpt from one of her books. But um, let me start with this one. She calls it, Why Suicide is Everybody's Business. Uh, this was posted in Christianity Today, March 14, Thousand Eighteen. So it's a little uh, about a year old. Each year, more than forty-four thousand people die by suicide in the United States. It's estimated that twenty-five times that number attempt suicide every year. She continues. In two thousand fifteen, uh, there were people who died under the Death with Dignity acts, like in the states of Oregon. 301 people in 2015 alone, Oregon and Washington. Uh, The vast majority of suicides of elderly or terminally ill people or those with disabilities occur quietly in homes and institutions far from the media, the courts, or the public eye. They're hurting, despondent people who never make the news and only rarely appear on your Facebook feed, she writes. They live with quiet desperation. The woman with cancer seesawing in and out of remission. The young boy in a semi-comatose condition, making eye contact, half-smiling, drifting away. The carpenter who broke his neck, falling from a second-story window, now abandoned by his wife who lives in a nursing home. And she goes on to explain that she also lived in a, she calls it a space of despondence, during the first few years after her diving accident. She relates a story when Ken, her husband taught high school government, that uh, she came to one of his classes and was invited to speak on legalizing euthanasia. This was before California had legalized medically assisted death. And uh, some of the Q&A between the kids was fascinating. She talks about being so surprised how interested they were, not only in her story with her early days of despair, but then was it okay to have a right to die law? A few hands went up. I could tell by their answers. They felt society should take action to help hurting and dying people. Some students insisted on life no matter how burdensome the treatment, and a few wanted to help by hurrying up the death process. One student shared how his mother was getting demoralized by the burden of taking care of his sister with developmental delays. He felt society should, in his words, do something. Like what, I challenged. Like, I'm not sure, but society ought to get more involved in the people's lives like my mother's. I glanced at Ken. He <laughs> nodded as if to give me a go-ahead <laughs> to take free rein with this young man. May I ask, what have you done to get more involved? <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. The student smiled and shrugged. How have you helped alleviate the burden? Have you taken your sister on an outing lately? Maybe to the beach, I teased. Have you offered to do some shopping for your mother? Maybe your mom wouldn't be so demoralized. (laughs) Maybe she wouldn't feel so stressed or burdened if you'd roll up your sleeves a little higher to help. (laughs) A couple of his friends by the chalkboard laughed and threw wads of paper at him. (laughs) Okay, okay, I see your point, he said. I smiled. My point is this. Society is not a bunch of people way out there who sit around big tables and think up political trends or cultural drifts. Society is you. What you do or don't do has a ripple effect on everyone around you. On a small scale, you can make a big difference in the families that you decide to help. I paused. I scanned the face of the students and closed, saying, you friends are society. Years later, she writes, I still hold to this fundamental truth. That the sick and the well are inextricably connected in community. Those on the margins, the depressed, the ill, the dying need us. But the converse is true. We need them too. And on writes, and I would I would just encourage you to just get on your search engine and look up Johnny Erickson Tata and the words assisted suicide. And you will find a number of great pieces. One is a chapter from one of her books. I won't take the time to read portions of it, but she refers to the movie. Um, did you see the movie me before you? I didn't a very popular film. I guess it came out what, about three years ago. Yeah. And a guy is uh, disabled in a wheelchair and they hire a young girl to come uh Cheer him up, yep. and they fall in love, of course. Yep. Um, don't think it'll ruin the story, but, you know, it becomes a uh, assisted death story. Uh, she writes in this one section, California, Oregon, Washington, Vermont, and Montana have all uh, legalized assisted suicide for the terminally ill. Eighteen states and the District of Columbia are considering it as well. Uh, she goes on to express there's, there's got to be virtue in suffering. We have to see this as an opportunity okay. for character, for Christ-likeness. There's purpose and meaning here. And so the, the short answer is I, I don't see a time or a way. We aren't a horse or a dog that has to be put down because we're sick and disabled. We are made in the image of God. And because of that, as hard as it may be, I just don't think it's up to man to decide when it's time to help somebody die. Uh, because it's inconvenient or there's a disability or it's expensive uh, these are men and women that are image bearers of God and it's not our place to mm. uh, pull that plug or hurry up a person uh, who otherwise might live and suffer for a long time mm.
1: it's so hard because it feels merciful you know if that if that person just really wants to go home they know the lord like I'm ready to die let's do this if assisted suicide feels merciful but Going back to what you said, the the Lord determines our days. They're numbered. He He's the only one that is supposed to call someone home. And,
0: and the challenges of medical technology and progress, um, you know, many of us are living a lot longer than we would have lived even 10, 20 years ago. Sure. And so then it becomes a, a medically uh, an ethical decision that, you know, Christian medical ethicists write about extensively about when is it right. And there are times when a person, it, you know, you let them die. Um, you have to decide whether you do not intubate, you do right. not resuscitate these types of things. My my mom who passed away uh, not long ago, uh, she's wanted to die for the past eight years. Yeah, yeah. And at some level, I understand that, but she was not going to hasten her death. Right. Her, her question was, "Why? I have no purpose, mm-hmm. and I grieve for people that are there. I don't know that I won't be there one day." Mm-hmm. But at the at the grander scale of things, uh, who are we to say? That uh, again, I love Johnny's comment about with the inextricably linked those of us who care for people that are disabled and the disabled. I went to see a man who's dying of prostate cancer a few days ago, and he's in a hospital bed in his home right now. I love going to see him, I don't mind at all. His mental faculties are a little bit frayed, he, he, he loses his thread a little bit. Um, he's not in pain because they're medicating him Uh, he he can get up he can move around but he is confined to bed for the most part but uh, I would miss seeing him Mm -hmm. and I know he has a litany of of people that come and support him and his wife and help her and he is not with us long and uh, you know I don't want to call it death with dignity but because that sounds trite, yeah. but I think that's what the Christian community is about. You sit with a friend, you read a, a psalm, you share some things, you talk about what he's doing with his day, and he actually stays very busy, even though he's very sick, yeah. he's limited, he is dying, his days are very short, and um, you know I wouldn't wouldn't overstate the case, but that's a ministry. Yeah. To go spend time and what how hard is that to go spend time with a friend who might be suffering? Mm-hmm. Take a person who's in assisted living and put them in a wheelchair and take them outside. Yep. As Johnny said, if you take her to the beach, you know, yeah. put their yeah. toes in the sand, take them to the park. That'll make their week. Yeah. Um, and, and I just think we, we miss the profound sanctity of life as we get older or even a person that's a quadriplegic or a paraplegic. And there's, there's a dignity Because that man or woman is the image bearer of God. Mm -hmm. And whose right is it to say no? Yeah. Uh, Take a shot and go to sleep and never wake up.
1: Yeah. I often think, you know, we did a series a while ago now called What Now? And it was four parts, and we used Howard Hendricks' teaching, and then we had some interviews. But in one of um, Prof's messages, he basically says, "If you haven't died yet, God has a purpose for <laughs> yeah. you to still be here, and yeah. you know, thinking about your friend um he's he's suffering, he's dying, um but God could have chosen to take him yesterday, and he didn't mm-hmm. so so for whatever that looks like, obviously his purpose in his day is different than my purpose as a you know young mom <laughs> like we have very mm-hmm. different days, um but God still has purpose for his life, and I think the more we can hang on to that yeah i if you're still on this planet, God has a reason for you to be here. and
0: An uh, 89, no, 91-year-old 90, person I know says, all I can do is pray, and I pray all day long for people. Mm. And you've heard me say this before because you've grown up listening to me preach, uh, I think a lot of us are sustained by silver-haired ladies totally. who pray <laughs> totally. and who are widows now, yeah. not not condescending at all, but I mean, it's, it's the crown of glory. These women who maybe can't do what they used to, but boy, they are fervent and effectual in their prayer life and the fabric of the Christian community, we're going to get to heaven and go, you know, I wouldn't have done anything if those people... <laughs> Yeah, totally. God totally. would have never used me if those people hadn't been praying for me. So just pray. All I can do is pray. What a terrible statement. You know, I get to pray. I have the privilege to pray. It's an honor to pray. So maybe God takes the props of our health away. Yeah. So we read a little more carefully. We're devoted to him. We, we spend more time in prayer. Uh, you, we have family friends that are in their 90s, and um, he's a physician, brilliant guy. He's always been an elder mentor friend to me. And the last time I saw him, he said, "You know, my wife and I, we read a book together every day. We only read five pages, though. Uh-huh. Now, this is a, they're both voracious readers. Sure, he said, we just read five pages, and we can do it in about fifteen minutes." Uh-huh. I said, "How'd you get to that?" He goes, "Arguing." <laughs> <laughs> but. But they're doing that together, and yeah. they're praying for their kids and their grandkids. What a sweet, powerful testimony yeah. to get up in the morning, have your coffee, read five pages, besides their their devotions. This is what yeah. they do together. Yeah. Well, that's, that's an incredible uh, piece of encouragement. You would not have learned that when you were 30.
1: You, right, right.
0: You wouldn't see any value in it. So, um, yeah. So, and in the, in the prof, I and mean, that was his line, if you're... If you were never more ready for heaven than the day you were saved, then why are you still here? Yeah. I think that was his quote.
1: Yeah. There's another anecdote. And I'll make sure in the show notes that the What Now episodes are linked. And also um, the Johnny articles that were mentioned. I'll make sure those are linked there, too, for your convenience. But um, he tells a story, remember, about an older lady who volunteers to send letters to, like, you know, new Brand first-time visitors to their church, and it takes her fifteen minutes per the envelope. Little, yeah. One thing, folding them, and the anecdote, you know, goes on. All these people start coming to Christ, and they start doing <laughs> the church, and and like all the pastors think they're doing something great, and then they realize, you know, it's this woman who, because she's praying for every person she mails a letter to for fifteen yep. minutes, and um, I, it's just, it's so good. If you haven't listened to the What Now series you got to listen to it, and you'll hear I was reticent to do it. I was not excited. I wasn't going to bring that up this time. <laughs> about an I... <laughs> you know, old-age retirement series, and it's so good. So anyway, go listen to it. Let's move on. We've got a fascinating ride in about the Sabbath.
2: Hi, Dr. E. My name is Michael, and I have a question for you. My wife, being brought up a Seventh-day Adventist to the fourth generation, went through a huge study in the Word about the Sabbath day years and years ago. Now, some believe within the church that the day changed from Saturday to Sunday, but I'm convinced that the Lord never changes. These preachers would be described as Sabbatarians. They believe that the Ten Commandments are still intact. So my first question for you is, do you? I, as well as my wife, believe we are not under the law any longer and that our rest is in Christ alone. It speaks of this in Hebrews. We no longer worship on a certain day, but today. We are not bound by the Mosaic law or any law for that matter. Now, the argument is if we aren't, do we murder and cheat and etc.? Of course not. The Holy Spirit lived in us and we died self daily to serve the Lord. But many believe we are still under the 10. The problem with that is that man changed the seventh day to Sunday, not God. And many preachers today say we are bound to the seventh day and should not work. Obviously, this doesn't count for those that are in ministry. I would like your thoughts on this, biblically speaking. Of course, Luther and Calvin both think the Sabbath day was done away with as well, but some of our favorite preachers do not. I have so much more I could say, but I would love to get your thoughts on this.
0: Thank you. Let's start with the Ten Commandments. When the New Testament is written, uh, people say the law was fulfilled. Right. So we don't have to follow the law anymore. Well, there's a lot wrong with that statement. Of the Ten Commandments, nine of them are implicitly or explicitly okay. restated in the New Testament. The one that's not is Sabbath. So this question, and this is in Mark chapter 3. Again, the scribes and Pharisees are always trying to set him up. And one of the things Jesus uh, seems to to. Enjoy doing, if I can say it that way, is healing on the Sabbath. And I don't think he's doing it just to be an irritation. Right. (laughs) But he knows what's going to happen. He's also demonstrating that he is Lord. So let's look at these questions of the Sabbath. This begins in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. It happened that he was passing through the grain fields on Shabbat, on Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of Sabbath. The Jews looked at Sabbath as sundown Friday night to sunrise Sunday morning. So that was Shabbat. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the resurrection of Christ, arguably the first day of the week, Sunday, uh, Traditional was they changed it to the first day of the week that early on in the mm-hmm. church i didn't yeah. realize that that's the argument the uh, seventh day adventists hold tenaciously to shabbat the sabbath still being on saturday yeah. and and i would call it a legalism that you know you have to do it this way mm-hmm. uh but i appeal to that passage because his point in verse 27 the sabbath was made for man and not man for the sabbath we're not enslaved to a particular day mm-hmm. uh Think about it from a pastor's point of view. Right. If Sabbath is Sunday, it's the hardest work day of your week. Yeah. Uh, so to me, uh, a Sabbath rest for a pastor is a Monday or a Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a physician friend who works way too much. He probably works eighty plus hours a week. Uh, I've been I've been bugging him to take half days off. So he's working really hard to take. Wednesday and Friday afternoons off. Mm. And then let's talk about what Sabbath is. Sabbath is not just resting and not watching television and not turning on switches. Sabbath is a rest from your normal work. Sabbath could be playing golf. Yeah. Sabbath could be going out with your family to have a picnic. Yeah. Sabbath could be enjoying a book in, uh, in the spring day and in, in a hammock, uh, reflecting on what God's done. Uh, It doesn't have to be this holy time of reading your Bible and praying Mm -hmm. only. It was rest. The land rested for a year. Uh, People rested from their work. They rested from collecting manna. It was taking a break. A Sabbath is trusting God that you're more effective working six days than seven. Yeah. It's like our money. Can you trust God with you're more effective with less percentage than 100 and you'd be better off than you would spending 100 or 110% of what you make. Sabbath was made for man. So to me, it's a gift. It's something we can enjoy. It's something we can take advantage of. And um, I think otherwise it's legalism in any form to say we have to do it on this particular day.
1: What do you think God did when he rested on the seventh day?
0: He ceased from creation. Uh, I think he enjoyed <laughs> what he had, had created. Um, there's a term called fiat that he spoke into existence. Yeah. Uh, I, you and I, some people like to watch science fiction. I think Spielberg does a great job with imagination with, you know, whether it's, you know, massive weather patterns or whatever, storms. Mm-hmm. If we envision God uh, creating the heavens mm-hmm. and the earth. And then he just sat there and enjoyed what he created. Mm-hmm. He looked upon it. I mean, he's an eternal, infinite being, always existing. It's not like he's bored. Uh, but I think the implication is, as image bearers, uh, you have a, a, a ability to rest. You can rest in your mm-hmm. good work. Mm-hmm. And and to reflect on last week, reflect on the day, what you're looking forward to, thanking God for your blessings. I mean, obviously, we would encourage people to spend time in the Word, spend time in prayer, reading a a good book that you know i'm reading a book on john owen right now that really is challenging me personally and i would consider that a sabbath experience yeah so and you might take sabbaths throughout the week right you might take a i'm gonna take an afternoon or two hours off i'm gonna read a book i'm gonna relax and rest from my normal work it's like when you're in a project on a computer. If you work on that thing all day long, you go crazy. Yeah, you take an hour crazy. break, you walk away, come back, you might have new eyes. Mm-hmm. Why is that spiritually mm-hmm. not even more significant? Mm-hmm. To take a break from your routine, to thank God, to look on your labors, to look on other labors. Uh, and, and it goes it goes back to trust. If I'm going to let my land fallow,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: if I'm not going to harvest on the day of harvest because it's Shabbat, I'm trusting God. Totally. And that to me is more more important than what day of the week it might be.
1: Mm. Okay, this next question is fun for me because I remember hashing it out with you probably when I was around 16 years old. So let's listen to Sarah's question.
2: Hey, Dr. E, this is Sarah from Franklin, Tennessee, and I am wanting to get a tattoo. And I know that Leviticus mentions to not mark your body, but I am curious if it carries into the New Testament after Jesus filled the law. Thanks so much.
0: Well, let's let's start this way. It's fascinating watching the popularity of tattoos. Oh yeah, in the past decade or two.
1: It's pretty Christian, actually. Oh uh, yeah, it's almost <laughs> anonymous.
0: Yeah. Um, of course, if you live in the Nashville area, as we do, the music and arts profession, you know, it's you're an anomaly. Well, you can't be a worship yeah. leader
1: if you don't have like yeah. a sleeve. So
0: like uh, that's another reason I'm not a worship leader. <laughs> um, Leviticus 19 is a compilation, kind of like a laundry list. Uh, we talk about the law. People think about the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. The law is, you know, 300 some codified uh, rules, regulations, and precepts. Le- Leviticus 19:28. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. Now, context: The Jews were a separate people. They were to separate themselves unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. They were not to do what the peoples around them did
1: okay
0: so to love god was to obey god Uh, we didn't always like the laws but the decalogue the 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 laws of the old testament were not burdensome to man in the sense that they were impossible we loved the law the burden was we were sinners Mm -hmm. and the law convicted us ergo it's a burden so it's like a stop sign or a speed limit sign that sign in and of itself isn't burdensome it it's an irritation to me because I don't want to stop, Right. or I don't want to go that slow. So the weight of the law reminds us by the New Testament, the words and works of Jesus, the laws fulfilled. Now this is a big debate right now nationally among some some pretty uh, in, you know big Christian voices about the Old Testament, what it means and doesn't mean. It's a bit of a free for all, but by Christ's perfect sacrifice, he fulfills the law, meaning he obey the law perfectly because we can't he died in our place on our behalf instead of us fast forward we have liberty we often speak of the stronger and weaker brother paradigm that paul discusses um those who are stronger can eat meat sacrificed to idols for example those who aren't equivocate back to our earlier answer about if you have to think about it twice you probably shouldn't do it right so i think believers have liberty in this area uh when they want to get scripture passages on their arm or a sleeve or on the back of their neck. People send me, uh, can you give this to me in Greek or Hebrew because I'm going to get a tattoo. Totally. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how many times I've done this for people. And first thing, I, I always wait a while just to irritate them, you know. And, and they say, I really want get a tattoo this weekend. And so I'll, I'll print it out. I'll put it in a PDF. I'll put it, I'll put it like in a PDF as well as a snippet. Because I know sometimes if it's a word thing, they the,
1: look different. They'll get yeah. jacked, and yeah. it can
0: be wrong. And they're getting now,
1: panda on you, their arm. Yeah, you of... <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly, or worse. So if you're gonna choose Greek or Hebrew, be sure you get it double, triple checked before it's inked on your arm. When you guys you know, we were on our roof, when you know the four of you were young, I did say no tattoos till you were on your own. My point was, if you got older, you'll change your mind. Right. Because the tattoo you at sixteen. Totally. It's not the tattoo you're going to want at 21. Yeah. And if we carry that algorithm out when you're 30, well, you like what you chose at 21. I'm talking very pragmatically. Sure. So that was more my point as a dad was, you're not doing this under my roof because I don't want to hear, you know, later on. Uh, it was Jesse and I were in a store once and this woman had this massive sleeve. This is, I mean, she was probably six or seven. She was young and she had this massive sleeve from her shoulder down to the top of her hand. And, um, It was a checkout, and I just made the comment, wow, that's an amazing tattoo. That must have taken a long time to have that put on sure. and she went into a litany of expletive words <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> about how she wished she'd never done it she was stupid when she'd done it. i forget how wow. old she was but she just went off you know one of the worst decisions i ever made and of course i'm going internally going yes 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 because <laughs> jesse was so fixated on yeah. wanting a tattoo um so that's the point of you know the, the bottom line is no new testament passage says you shouldn't have a tattoo sure uh, that Leviticus passage just caused me just enough pause to say, yeah, God was pretty adamant about that. It's hmm. interesting. And, and I'm not saying it's sinful. I think we have liberty. But my word of caution is wait six months and then wait another six months. Yeah. Yeah. And if you still want it after a year. You got liberty. Now, right. I did not give you permission to do this. <laughs> that's, a, that's just to ask Dr. E off the top of the head.
1: Oh, too funny. Well, we've got one more question for this episode. It is a write-in, so our friend will read Mike's question for us. Hi, Dr.
2: E. This is Mike. And here's a question for you if you choose to use it. Needless to say, the sins of my youth often raise their ugly head. So these verses can seem contradictory. How do believers reconcile Romans 4:7 through 8 and Psalm 103:12 with 2 Corinthians 5:10? Does the 2 Corinthians verse refer only to works?
0: Mike, great question. And uh, let's let's take this a little bit at a time here. First of all, let me read a couple of these references. Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And then Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I think it was um, Warren Wearsby that when he read that verse said, uh, God has uh, gone out to the middle of the ocean and put a sign up that says, no fishing here. <laughs> 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 um Let's let's make a couple observations. First of all, forgiveness is God's action to remove the consequences of our sins. First uh, John one nine, He is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's an act that only He can do of our sin. Uh, your question asks uh, how do we reconcile that He removes them from Second Corinthians and the idea of judgment day. Second Corinthians five is not particularly the same thing. In other words, he's talking in 2 Corinthians about our temporal and eternal dwelling and that we are, you know, we don't want to die, we don't want to leave our current body, and we, don't, we long to be clothed, but we don't want to go through that process. And then in verse, uh, the verse you reference in verse 10, he says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There are no less than, I'm going to say six, it's been a while, I have to do more homework on this, I apologize, Mike, six judgments in the New Testament. The unbelievers, the uh, Jews, there are judgments for our works. Uh, So there's a number of different judgments. This judgment here is referring to our works. And our works are judged not in the same way sin is you're you're making the which makes sense the comparison of okay am i going to be judged for sins that that i've done and maybe i feel ashamed about it? am i sure i'm forgiven if you and i confess our sins first john 1 9 we're forgiven period end of story no more fishing consequences of those sins may affect our life that doesn't mean we're not forgiven Makes sense now the judgment question of what's being judged are our good works. And we can do uh, good works that are useless, and we can do good works that have reward. So in 1 Corinthians 3, we read about this future judgment of our works. Let me read a few verses uh, beginning at verse 13. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has done, remains, he will receive reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, so as yet through fire. So this is called the judgment of our works. And so you know, this is, we can do something in the name of Christ altruistically. We can be involved in a youth group, go to do a missions trip, give money to the church, all for the wrong reasons. And so there is a qualitative evaluation of the way we serve God are the works, Ephesians 2.10, works he prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. As my friend Ralph White says, Ephesians 2.10 is the most neglected verse in the Bible. Mm -hmm. We know 8 and 9, but none of us look at 10. We were prepared for those good works to walk in them. So, when, when you and I serve Christ, when we do good works, the idea is, am I doing it with a, with a wholeheartedness? Am I doing it to serve the Lord? Am I doing it out of gratitude? Um, I have this picture in my mind. Dr. Stan Tosaint talked about this giant pile of works. We go to heaven, and we've got this enormous, you know, let's say it's like a giant boulder of good works, and the fire hits it, and whatever, you, know, is refined by fire and remains, maybe it's the basketball that was the good works that god evaluated as really good the rest of it was just chaff was burned away and i have a picture of this little missionary lady named joyce niece who's with the lord who served uh christ in a very arduous condition who was very simple had very little money loved christ but served him so hard and so long with uh wickliffe bible translators and her her pile of works let's say is you know the size of a a a basketball and when the fire hits it, it's still a basketball (laughs) and mine or somebody else's might be a giant house. When the fire hits it, it's a golf ball. (laughs) So not to be pejorative, but I think it's the quality that Paul is saying, it's revealed by fire, that it will test the quality of each man's work. So don't live in, in shame and in uh, the ugly head that raises its voice in your heart. Know that you're forgiven. Um, the shame and the guilt can do one thing that's good for us, Mike. It can keep us from those sins. It can remind us, don't go back there. And that's the good part of having a, a, what I would call a, a holy guilt and a holy shame. But our works are a different category. Our works are going to be judged. And uh, we, we serve God by faith. And at the end of the day, we pray and hope that our works are uh, pleasing to him. But let's differentiate salvation, uh, our works, as well as in guilt or shame uh, from this refinement.
1: Well, if you've got a biblical or theological question, I guarantee other people have the same one. So call us or email us. That contact info is in the show notes below. And let us know. We want to hear your questions and we want to answer them. Thanks again for listening. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.